Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the Great Women Artists podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry creates imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms, inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the light of Paradiso. Female founder Rosh Matani finds the intersection between art, literature and jewellery, reinterpreting one of the greatest pieces of Italian literature. Drawing on a rich tapestry of history, each piece has its own story of strength and courage. It is an absolute joy to see this week's guest, Tacita Dean, interpret Dante's work in her own magical way. Stay tuned to the Alighieri Instagram as they launch their debut fine art collection of natural diamonds and rubies. You are the first to hear that the collection will go live with a very special guest, Francesca Hayward, as the Royal Opera House stages the Dante Project this Thursday to the backdrop of Tasta Dean's incredible Inferno, Purgatorio and Paradiso. And don't forget, you as a Great Man Artist listener have an exclusive 10% discount across all magical Alighieri jewellery with the code... T-G-W-A at checkout. Don't miss it and enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most trailblazing artists working today, Tacita Dean. Working across drawings, photographs to installations and found objects, Tacita Dean is perhaps best known for her incredibly pioneering and staggeringly beautiful work in film. Interested in capturing the truth of the moment, the film as a medium and the sensibilities of the individual, it is particularly her eloquent 16 and 35mm analogue films that are carried by a sense of history, time and place, which at times becomes portraits of the mediums itself. Painterly, unpredictable, physical and truthful, she has described her films as depictions of their subject and therefore closer to painting than they are to narrative cinema. Born in Canterbury, UK, Tasta studied at Falmouth School of Art and earned her MA from the Slade. Rising to acclaim in the 1990s and early 2000s with films such as The Green Ray and Disappearance at Sea, the latter of which earned her a nomination for the prestigious Turner Prize, Tasta now lives between Berlin and Los Angeles. A Royal Academy edition and recipient of numerous prizes such as the Hugo Boss Prize at the Guggenheim and the 6th Benessi Prize at the 51st Venice Biennale, Tacita has exhibited all over the world. Solo exhibitions include at the Tate Britain, the Royal Academy, the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery. Between 2014 to 15, she was an artist in residence at the Getty Research Institute and in 2011 she filled Tate Modern's Turbine Hall with her mammoth 13 metre high film, Film. 
which has been described as a lovingly spliced poem of hand-tinted images. But the reason why we are also speaking with Tessa today is because she is about to unveil her most recent commission, the set design and costumes for a new ballet, The Dante Project, a collaboration with the Royal Ballet's choreographer Way McGregor at the Royal Opera House London. And she is also the subject of solo exhibitions across both Frith Street spaces, featuring these forthcoming designs, plus incredible films such as 150 Years of Painting, featuring conversation between Julie Meritu and Lucita Hurtado and Pan Amicus, which has filmed entirely on the estate of the Getty Centre and Villa. Tasta Dean, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It is such an honour to speak with you today. I feel like I've grown up with your works. I remember as a teenager seeing film at the Turbine Hall and the way that the light flickered in that room, it just captivated every single museum gobo. It was incredible. Then your exhibition kind of trilogy at the National Portrait Gallery, the National Gallery, the Royal Academy, and being particularly moved by the Montefon letter, which of course we discussed with Ali Smith. And now viewing your most recent forthcoming designs for the Dante Project and Films, being a huge Lucita Hurtado and Julie Meriti fan myself, I was in awe of 150 years of painting. This conversation between two minds whose birthdays in 2020 resulted in 150 years. Meritu's 50th and Lucita's 100th. The way that these films just enchant and enthrall you. And for me, when I watch one of your films, it's like time stops. It's a physical experience and you're just so drawn to them. So I want to start by asking you about film itself. Why are you attracted to the medium? What are its potentials? Well, when I started with film like uh, a lot of kids my age it was super eight in fact for me it was standard eight actually which in the 80s was kind of normal way to make an image a moving image and then at Falmer School of Art I made my first 16 millimeter film and I sort of started to a system of working with it that I loved and fell in love with and you know found my medium in a way and then you know my medium was taken from me not the other way around (laughs) so it's a funny way that people look at it it's become a threatened medium you know for me it's akin to having painting taken away from a painter that's what a medium is it's something that can outlive time or you know stand apart from time the problem always with film sadly is that for the industry it's a technology and technologies go obsolete they can be you know disposed of and that's how they see it so you know I've been fighting to prove to them that it's more than just that it's a a medium in which to make something different from digital technology yeah what do you think are the potentials of working with film I love film for everything you just said in a way (laughs) it's a a medium absolutely embedded in time and, and with time it's a physical medium it actually has depth it has many many layers of emulsion so you feel it and of course it's just still images that are moved along through the sprockets So it's not actually moving per se, it's actually a series of still images. And I love it for the many internal disciplines that are particular to it as a medium. For example, you can only film a certain amount. You know, the whole artifice of editing came about because film comes in these finite roles, you know. So like three minutes, three and a half minutes or ten minutes, you know, at a push a bit more. But generally it's like ten minute roles, you know. So film runs out, life carries on. (laughs) You start again, 15, 20 minutes have passed, and you have to pick up the threads, and then that becomes the challenge of editing. And for me, because I always edit on my own, on a cutting table, you wow. know, and I refuse to be told that I'm a Luddite and old-fashioned for doing that because people are still, as I say, carving in marble. If anything, film's way more recent than oil paint. <laughs> well, exactly, there's a trajectory for that. 
So I cut my films on a cutting table and it's my own private sphere. It's so much about getting from one place to the next economically. And you have to understand a film like 150 Years of Painting was a mammoth edit, actually, because, you know, we filmed for a whole day. So I had a whole day of material and, you know, one camera went down in moments, which means that you don't have anywhere to go to when something is you don't want. or It's almost like bridging from one moment to the next. And it takes an extremely long time, and it's not so easy in order to make it look so effortless. Yeah, well, it totally does. I mean, that film, 150 Years, I mean, it just was extraordinary, this conversation between Lutita Hurtado and Julie Meritu. And my favourite aspect about it was just how Julie Meritu gazed at Lutita, this kind of <laughs> adoringness. It was yeah. just... I mean, tell us about how the genesis of this work. I'm fascinated. How did you realise the 150 years, which are so serendipitous? Well, they're both friends of mine. Lucita's son, Matt Mulliken, I've known for years and years and years because he oh. lives in Berlin. And Julie's obviously one of my closest friends. It's just the coincidence of the birthday that made that film happen. You know, I was saying to Julie the other day that, you know, had she been born the day after, it wouldn't have been enough. I suddenly realised that both Julie and Lucita shared their birthdays. And at a certain point, I realised, hey, wait a minute, you know, Lucita's going to be 100 when Julie's going to be 50. And that moment I thought, my God, I've got to somehow make a film called One I just It was the title, actually, 150 Years of Painting, because it's such a strong title. Clearly, it's a, somehow a patriarchal title. <laughs> but I wanted to reclaim it, you know. It's yeah. like 100, it's these two amazing, extraordinarily beautiful, handsome, intelligent painters, both immigrants to America, both sharing something of the arrival and what that meant, both mothers, just somehow the alchemy was right. So it all came about very, very quickly. I was in LA for Christmas and Lucita lived in Santa Monica. Julie was coming down with Jessica and the kids for New Year's Eve. And I just suddenly thought, I've got to do it. So we scrambled it together. And it was the 3rd of January that we filmed it. And I remember thinking, well, they're turning their 150 years in November. It was the year, it was yeah. correct. So I thought, well, that doesn't matter. That's enough in a way. Thank God, because, you know, two months later, pandemic came and eight months later, Lucita died, which was heartbreaking. And she would have made it had the world been normal, I'm sure. Yeah. I think she just thought, this is boring now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. I mean, you saw the film. Yeah. At no sense do you see any frailty of mind, of body of spirit I mean she's formidable that was the thing it was it was the alertness of her mind that I was just completely captivated by I mean I saw her kind of from a distance when she was here at the Serpentine a few years ago but seeing that and I think what I loved about that film so much was your kind of focus on the hands and this idea that it was 150 years of painting and painting is done by the hand and Julie was kind of automatically sketching yeah and these beautiful shots and I mean it kind of reminds me of Artemisia Gentileschi and all these portraits of her hand you know it's like what is actually the portrait of a painter? It's not really their face, it's their hand. <laughs> well, I really wanted to make it about painting. Yeah. This was the thread. And although that is painting, and then they kind of went off, of course, into various ways, but it, in the end, it always tried to bring it back to painting. And of course, the hands of a painter. I mean, how do you make a portrait of anyone? And seeing them paint is not the answer, actually, because yeah. that's the misunderstanding. That's of... the secret moment. <laughs> Well, I feel that a lot with Cy Twombly because when I made a film of him, I felt the moment is the encounter and then there's a lot of sitting about. And I think 
artists generally, you know, all that cliche of them toiling about with canvases. I think for me, what's more interesting is them just sitting back, recollecting and thinking. I just think that's such a powerful thing to watch and examine. So I filmed Julie before when she was first in Berlin doing this huge painting mural, but it was just like a massive painting. And I remember thinking, there's no way this should go unrecorded. So I just went there with my 16mm camera and I just thought, well, I won't do anything with it. I just want to record this. And then later I did an exhibition of five Americans and I thought I really want to bring in a woman. Yeah. I had Merce Cunningham, Cy Twombly, Leo Steinberg as a photograph and Klaus Oldenburg. And then I thought, no, I need, I need Julie. <laughs> so I have to make them. I ha- and so I, that's why I made it into a diptych, two little films that are back projected. Amazing. But I'm intrigued by this film's painterly qualities as well, because, I mean, also this idea that actually when you go downstairs at Golden Square right now, it is like a sort of oil paint. I mean, what is it about the kind of painterly qualities of film that you're attracted to? Well, I mean, paint and film are organic. And that's, for me, quite primal, bright, very important about it. It's salt and, and silver and it's layer upon layer upon layer. So there's a lot of physical connections to painting and to photochemical film so the colors are so i mean embedded is the only word i can think of to really express that they're so deep and deep in it so it is a very painterly you know every film frame is organically different i often say it's a bit like a snowflake every single one has a different composition of grain so it is a special medium and it's absolutely worth protecting which has been an ongoing struggle of course unfortunately For me, it is utterly different than making something with a digital camera. It's a different way of making, contrary to what everyone thinks. So for me, painting and film are mediums, and it's a really strong word. People call it old-fashioned or (laughs) out-of-date. But it's not, actually. It's a a powerful medium. People, filmmakers, you know, Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, there are people still using it in cinema. It's a powerful medium. But of course, the world likes to see it as just over. Uh, and that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So we have to keep fighting, not only for the medium, but also for the language around it. Yeah. I mean, you work across a range of mediums as well. I mean, installation, drawing, photography, found objects. I mean, do you think the filmic always comes into it as well? Film is always there. I mean, not in a sort of explicitly conscious way. It's just, you know, if I want to make a film, then... I do it, and and often films are installed in a very particular way, sometimes in relation to other objects, and sometimes back-projected, sometimes very small, sometimes bigger. So, I mean, the whole of Antigone, which was this massive film project that I made, was all about uncovering the fact that I just could not work in a narrative way. Despite wanting to, or imagining that I could, (laughs) I just defaulted back to being what I am, which is an artist. But what I find amazing is, you know, for example, I mean, I will never forget seeing the Montefon letter at the Royal Academy because even just this absolutely incredible, it's nine blackboards joined together over seven metres wide. And experiencing this was kind of like experiencing a film. I mean, it's this incredible chalk on blackboard. It's unfixed, which also kind of alludes to this kind of unpredictability and slight nervingness as a viewer of the film does as well. I mean, I'd love to know a bit more about the Montefon letter in the sense that do you want to sort of create that narrative within that still image? Because for me, I mean, there was a whole world that was built into that one image. Well, I mean, the blackboards came about very connected to film and to time that moves within the drawing, going into it, as well as along it, along a series of them. They were originally quite a lot about cinema, but they are always in flux, which is what's important. So when you say they're not fixed, they are always in flux. There's this sense of time happening 
through the mark making. And, you know, it was an avalanche, the third avalanche. But of course, all three avalanches were embedded in it. This was a story I uncovered about an avalanche that killed a, a village in Austria. And then the priest who officiated another avalanche came and buried him. And then a third avalanche unburied him. So the reason it remained in social history, in a way, was because it was seen as a local miracle, because the priest got unburied <laughs> by a third. So at the time, it was the time of Brexit, and I was waiting for that third avalanche to come and unbury us all for Brexit. <laughs> I'm fascinated at this aspect of it being sort of the slowness and the reflectiveness of life in this sort of time-based media. When dealing with these urgent and sort of vital political subjects, why are you drawn to landscapes or seascapes for your work? It's funny that, because I don't really... You know, you put it in a very particular context there. I mean, the threads were laid very, very long ago. And I was obviously at Falmouth School of Art. I was a, a pilot gig rower. And that meant that we used to row out in whatever the weather. And somehow I must have observed sea at close quarter quite well at that point. Because then I just started to use the blackboards to draw the sea and had a sort of memory of what that was like to be at close quarter. So that kind of came from there. And then with the Montefon letter at a time, and even Chalkfall, which was another large drawing I made on the same scale as the Montefon letter, which was about the, the medium collapse, actually. I was very conscious that I'm drawing on a, of a chalk cliff collapsing with chalk. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, and of course, the, with a connection to film and the, and the collapse of that, potential hopefully not <laughs> the collapse of my medium with film so that was self-reflexive and that both those subjects came from white you know the whiteness of chalk and, yeah. and white upon white and I just started spray chalking uh this slate works and I was began to sort of you know spray on the drawing with the chalk and I thought oh my god so what could be white upon white and I thought well an avalanche you know, there's always very sort of practical, less kind of romantic reasons for, yeah. for doing something. But, I mean, I have to say how I feel I am quintessentially English is that I really do love the land of England. I'm not so happy with what's going on on top of it, but the, the stuff of England, kind of acorns and soil and peat you find in a Paul Nash painting, and that still really affects me deeply. And I don't live here anymore. But I do love the land of England still. So I'm attracted to the landscape. But of course, the Montefon letter is not from here. Yeah, it's European. It's European. And we cut ourselves off from it. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I do love the stuff of weather and light and sun. And, you know, I am quite into elemental things. I guess I just think it's really interesting because you use such... I mean, like for your three exhibitions around London in 2018, you kind of got the traditional genres of still life, portrait and landscape. I mean, obviously, I believe personally that all art is political, but applying these very traditional genres to these very kind of present and current political events. It's interesting you say all art is political. <laughs> That's another podcast of itself. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, and also, for example, with Inferno, which is the blackboard drawing I did for Dante Project. So that was, in a way, a very, very political poem, The Divine Comedy. I decided to make a huge and epic drawing in, and I forced myself to do it, to draw a negative. It made it much more difficult because hell is cold 
So I thought about ice, ice in negative, because I decided to draw in negative as black. Whereas you, with the Montefon letter, you have this incredible explosion of white, and, and it's spectacular. When I was drawing Inferno, I couldn't, I didn't give myself the luxury of the spectacular. I actually had to work with very dark. You know, you have the blackness of, of ice, but the, you know, rocks are not, you know, they don't come out like snow in negative, so they're not white. They're kind of also grey. So it was a very, very difficult drawing to do. So contemporary politics right now is so at the forefront of our lives that it's hard as an artist to ignore it, especially when I'm drawing. I embed it inside these drawings. So I write on my drawings, I have done for years, but I, in a way it's also just to make a mark, to put chalk on the board. And then it gets rubbed out and it gets rewritten or other things get rewritten. So they're very much, there's this, you know, sedimentation of marks. And I don't, people say, what's that? And I said, I don't even know. Because you know, <laughs> I can't really remember. That's the sort of misunderstanding of why it's there. So I'm dealing with Inferno and the ninth circle of hell, which is where corrupt politicians are. <laughs> And the time is ripe for corrupt politicians. And I'm drawing in LA, you know, it's the time of Brexit. So there's a lot of very famous corrupt politicians whose names are embedded in Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is one name that still is, re you know, legible. And that's Mitch McConnell in America, because I do find him truly despicable. And it is like a, a working surface of thinking and then erasure, thinking and erasure. So they are there. But then, of course, you step back and you have this something else you have a, a a mountain scaping negative or upside down or or you have an avalanche which is full of my anger about brexit with that drawing so um it's all there but it doesn't look like a political <laughs> it's just you know it's just there it's embedded in it and you know the films are political in another way antigone was political particularly you know but in more of an obvious way I want to come back to your work in a moment, but I want to go back to your beginnings in life and in art. I mean, you were born in Canterbury in 1965. Was art present when you were growing up? No, I mean, yes and no. Probably art was the Royal Academy. We had paintings in our house. But it wasn't, it's not as present as it is in my son's life, for example. So it's a different thing. And definitely not in any way uh, contemporary art. I sort of came to film by myself. My father had a Standard 8 camera that just sat there and I one day I picked it up and I have one or two very early Standard 8 films. It's funny because, of course, my grandfather was a film producer and film director, but that was cut off to me. That was just a sort of theoretical idea that he worked with film. It wasn't something I even understood, actually. All I knew is that he was in films. And a pioneer, actually, that I found out to some extent, but, you know, a complicated man... So film was there in a different way, but that was definitely cinema. It wasn't, you know. Um, my father once said to me, how could you possibly make films? You don't even have a studio, as in a film studio, like Ealing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, how I came to it is, is such a different way from, from that strand. And then how were your experiences at Falmouth and the Slade? I mean, how were they formative? I loved Falmouth. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. My family were very intellectual. They didn't see art as a sort of suitable future for... A daughter so it was a sort of fight to go to art school and so I actually deliberately chose the art school that was furthest away from Kent <laughs> <laughs> and, and thank god I just absolutely love Falmouth it was a really little small school very intimate and I think it was a great education for me and then I came to London for two years and I tried to, to get into various postgraduate courses in the end I studied painting in the Slade which was a whole different experience but I was in the painting department but I was already you know dysfunctional and disobedient <laughs> you know the Slade was the first 
year that they postgraduate that they moved into Woburn Studios, which is the old Courtauld Institute galleries. So it was the top floor, which had these Hessian walls on the assumption that everyone was working with canvases and could just nail. And I wasn't. I was working on paper and other bric-a-brac I could find. And I remember finding that a bit difficult. So that's how the origins of the blackboard drawings is because I just had to put up two pieces of hardboard that I painted white so I could stick things on this hessian. And then one day I found some blackboard paint where I was staying and I just painted it black. And then in my second year, I asked if I could go to the ticket office on the ground floor. So I separated myself physically from everyone else. And I I love that little space. It was one of my (laughs) favourites. It had an open window onto Woburn Square. And I was very, very happy down in that space. But I was very much an outsider in painting. And at that point, I had a very close friend who was in the media department, uh, Christina McBride. And because of possibly her connection to the media department, I, I sort of started to spend a lot of my time in that department. And then I went to France. And between Falmouth and the Slade, I went to Greece, to the Scoli Carantechnon, began the life in, of a young artist in London until I left. So soon after you graduated, you created one of your most acclaimed films, Disappearance at Sea, which was nominated for the Turner Prize. I mean, I'm fascinated by this work because it's based on a specific story inspired by Donald Crowhurst, a British businessman and amateur sailor who died whilst attempting a voyage around the world. I mean, can you tell us about this work? And I know you don't work in narrative, but this work has very much a kind of story behind it. I mean, how did you set out to tell a story, but through in sort of unnarrative way? Well, I think it was the learning curve that I was on because my first film, The Martyrdom of St Agatha, which had a spoken voiceover, it was very interesting because I, a lot of people really hated that. <laughs> uh, in the art Why? world. Why? Well, I, I think exactly for what we're talking about is, you know, discomfort with, with narrative in art. And that comes up in Antigone too, to some extent about why is, you know, Anne says, why is narrative, you know, why don't we like narrative, you know, why don't we call it art? It's kind of an interesting thing. But with Disappearance at Sea, what happened was, you know, when I was in Bourges, because I also made a bag of air, which was sort of like a poem in a way, and I was reading a lot about Crowhurst and obviously my connections to Falmouth and to the sea, and when I got the commission... And I went up there and there was this fixed lighthouse and I thought I really want to do something in this tiny little lighthouse. And I, I thought I would do so in the, a spoken narrative on top. And then uh, we filmed in the north of Berwick in the Longstone Lighthouse. And it was a lighthouse without a tower. So it meant that the head, the light, the bulbs were actually, you know, on, you could climb down this, it was on a cliff. So suddenly I was bewitched by the beauty of it. It would have been a terrible day and the light was changing and it just became a beautiful evening. So I just turned the camera to the mechanism of the light bulb and it was just amazing series of shots. But then I did pursue the whole disappearance at sea original idea for the last shot, which was to try and have the light on the water. You know, the whole narrative of Crowhurst exists just in that title, actually. And that when I saw the footage, it was enough. It didn't need anything more. So it was about letting go. Art is what's very, very important, is allowing yourself to not be fixed by your original idea. And I'm definitely an artist that, you know, enjoys the journey. I'm not particularly attracted to work that is an idea that is just made. I actually like art that has obviously evolved and become something that the artist wasn't intending to make, but became something else. And for me, that's much more interesting 
artwork. And of course, that brings in the whole relationship to chance and chance intervention, which is also so connected to the medium of film, because, of course, everything you film in a film camera, a photochemical camera, is unseeable. You can't see it. You know, camera, it means room. It's a dark room. And I always think, well, there's lots going on in that dark room. I don't want, I can't see it. No one else can see it. And then only when you process and print do you turn the lights on. And this is one of my biggest, for me, profoundest differences between that and digital is that digital, you've got the lights on already. Yeah. And I caught the mystery because there are some things that the medium will do better than me. And I think the better artists are the ones that allow the medium to take them somewhere, but having the guts to just you know, go with it. Totally, the kind of unpredictability-ness of it as well. And that's why I'm so fascinated and drawn, especially to your work with clouds. I mean, already it's just such a sort of poetic thing. I mean, Ali Smith actually talks about how apparently as a child you used to try and catch clouds. I don't know if that's true or not. No, it is true. <laughs> Amazing. But, you know, this idea of air and air being completely unfixable and clouds being something that is never the same again. And it, for me, just utterly transfixed by it. I mean... When did you become interested in clouds and how have you incorporated this, especially in your work, such as Veteran Cloud or something? The funny thing is, is that I know that when I made a bag of air, the idea was to catch a cloud. And I was in France and I even went to talk to a, you know, we went to a little airport to try and hire a plane <laughs> to catch a cloud. You know, this idea that you could open the window and, and put a plastic bag and catch a cloud. And he said... <laughs> No, you know, because it's going so fast, your arms would be snapped off. And obviously it was just such a naive idea. Yeah. But it was an idea that I had carried from childhood about having a bag with a cloud. It's a bit, yeah. you know, magical thinking in a way. And so I actually ended up driving through the night to go to a valley in um, L'Anson-Vacour, which was famous for its morning mist, you know, and it's still hoping that I was going to catch a cloud or a bag of mist. You know, I went to L.A. in 2014. Getty's Scholar Housing is on Sunset Boulevard. And my son went to school on Sunset Boulevard, just off it. I picked him up and I was driving back down it. And there was this just beautiful, huge cloud. I can't even begin to explain it. It was just like monumental <laughs> blossom of a cloud, just blooming in front of the end of Sunset Boulevard. And then it was the contrast between the, you know, dark azure sky and the cloud there was no you know like we're used to in England sort of ambiguity around the edge it was just sharp cloud wow. and this deep blue and I looked at it and I thought at that moment I thought I have to draw that as a blackboard I'd stopped making blackboard drawings I hadn't done them for a very very long time and I've got to call it sunset again driven by the title it was the first cloud I, I drew in LA and it's called sunset and the magic of L.A. was the clouds. And the funny thing is, is that I didn't think there were clouds in L.A. And I say this to people, the clouds in L.A. And they, you know, people who live there for years say, oh, are there clouds in L.A.? I said, yeah, <laughs> look up. I mean, I just find them unbelievable because they're it's like different. treasure, though. Yeah, they're just like higher. They're related to wind. They're cleaner. They're whiter. There's a lot of vapor trails, too. So I just began to do a lot of work with clouds. And I did this exhibition called... A Concordance of 50 American Clouds. And it was, again, a lot of mediums, blackboard drawings and slates, painted postcards that were half-found postcards with clouds. And then these lithographs that I made with Gemini, of which are called LA Exuberance. And LA Magic Hour is a new set I'm making, which is, of course, to do with sunset. And they are drawings, but people think that they're photographic in some strange way. And I've just been a cloud watcher. And the, funnily, with a concordance, the one 
work that I wanted to make, which I've now subsequently made, which was called um, A Cloud Makes Itself, which is that sometimes in LA you're looking at it as a deep blue sky and you suddenly see the tiniest flicker of a white and a cloud just grows in the sky. I mean, really, in real time, just boom, 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 it gets bigger and bigger. And sometimes it becomes the weather, sometimes it just disappears again. So I really wanted to film that, and it's extremely difficult, of course, because, you know, they're always moving. But I work with this wonderful uh, cameraman, and we just chase clouds. We, you know, no, it's one roll of film. It's ten minutes. And, you know, you had to track the cloud because, of course, it moves. And you don't, also, you don't know which ones are going to become a cloud or not. Yeah. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's a complete lottery. And suddenly this cloud starts making itself. And then it divides into four, and it disappears. And a plane goes past, so you know that it's real time. And then just before it disappears, another cloud starts making itself. And I'm thinking, oh, no, that's ruined my film, the purity. But you often see clouds making themselves in a certain sky. They're very, very beautiful, particularly in L.A. I have seen one in France, but it's really an L.A. thing. But it always reminds me of the film that you made of the turbine hole as well, that kind of flickers of colour that you get yeah. from the film. It's almost like clouds in a way, because it kind of makes itself. Yes. <laughs> but I now want to come to, I mean, this is totally related to L.A. as well, because... The Dante Project, I mean, you mentioned um, Inferno earlier, but this is just going to be extraordinary. I mean, when this podcast comes out, it will be up at the Royal Opera House. Um, you have collaborated with Wayne McGregor for this. You have made the costumes and set design, which from the Frith Street show that's up right now, just look extraordinary. And I'm so fascinated by this because... A lot of people have a very strong affinity with Dante's Divine Comedy, which is fantastic. I mean, have you always been an admirer of the Divine Comedy? And I mean, how did you always envision it? Is this something that's kind of deep-rooted in you? Or was it a new thing? No, it's a new thing in a way. I mean, I, it's not that I didn't know about it, but I had never read it. So, you know, the whole thing is a new thing. Not only uh, Dante, but also, you know, working for ballet and working also with Thomas Addis, as well as Wayne McGregor. You know, I knew about Dante through the, the poem itself, but I actually knew mainly through art. So through William Blake, particularly through Sandra Botticelli, these beautiful drawings that I'd seen at the Royal Academy many, many years ago, which I'd always already borrowed in a work I made called Blind Pan, which was the cipher of just seeing the two characters, Dante and Virgil, you know, repeated going down through the circles. And I remember thinking... That is so cinematic, actually. Yeah. You know, the, the, the spectator going through as a repeated cipher. A lot of people have worked with Divine Comedy. So when I came to start thinking about it, it was, at first I was terrified and in awe of the theatre, in awe of a ballet and what you do as a set designer and costumes, you know, truly terrified me. <laughs> you know, and I did probably take a few steps in the wrong direction before coming back to just making it about something that was also familiar to me. So I decided to make it about a progression through mediums that I'm familiar with. And also, as I said before, through negative to positive, through monochrome to colour and through in representation to abstraction in a way. So, you know, three acts, um, Inferno, Purgatorio and Paradiso. And, you know, Paradise, if you read Dante, is verging on the boring because it's so much about... Well, it is, because <laughs> virtue is tiring. <laughs> of course, Inferno is way more interesting. But also, the paradise, there's no destination. You are in the destination. So it's, it's a different atmosphere, in a way. And it's very planetary and, and, for me, very abstract. So I decided to make it entirely abstract. 
of work. And I'm turning the Royal Opera House into a, a cinema, briefly. Fantastic. Shared with, you know, <laughs> with the dancers, of course, and with the music. And then Inferno, obviously, is the drawing and, and oppressive and dark. And, and, and Sin, actually, is white because it's all done in negative. So the dancers are covered in chalk. You know, they cover each other with yet more sin. Wow. So it, it spirals down into, you know, until you hit Satan, which is completely white. And, you know, and then purgatory had to be both negative and positive. And in the end, I made a positive of a negative. <laughs> <laughs> so it's photochemical photograph. Um, I took these jacaranda trees, which are these beautiful trees in L.A., which I'd encountered, where the whole tree turns into flowers so there's no leaves plus flower it's just flower and then sort of this beautiful purple and then I realized that the negative of purple was actually this strange green otherworldly green so I actually made a positive of a negative and so it's this beautiful kind of strange green and then colored out the background in in just white uh, pencil you know which is a labor of love it's a huge job and then paradise is a cinemascope film just just color and the circle i've seen the whole of inferno and it's amazing and it was extremely moving in la and I, i've heard the music for purgatory and purgatorio and paradiso so i lived with that music for a while not that the film in any way illustrates the music or vice versa but just to give me some sense of it and it's just so beautiful <laughs> i really do think it's going to be quite special yeah especially after what we've been through you know, which is a sort of divine comedy, really. You know, yeah. A lot of people have been in hell, most of us in purgatory, and we're all, you know, hope for paradise. <laughs> Fantastic. Tastity, thank you so much for coming on today. We just have one final question, which we always ask our guests. If there was a woman artist, uh, past or present, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Maybe Leonora Carrington. Or Eileen Agar, or any of the surrealists, that sort of era I was quite interested in. I liked the sound of Eileen Agar as well. I mean, I know Leonora was a friend of Lucita as well. And that was such a fertile period, I think, for art made by women. It was, the, you know, the beginning of it. So, a ton of questions. Fantastic. Tastadine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 72nd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Tacita Dean. It was so fascinating to hear all about Tacita's incredible career and I cannot wait to see her divine comedy as it takes to the Royal Opera House this autumn. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Menenich and research assistant was Viva Ruji. If you have been enjoying this episode so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 